Welcome to Glam City. We are here excited to bring you 10 wonderful episodes of Oral Treats in 2018. And for those that haven't listened to us before, Glam City. Shame. Shame. Yeah, indeed. Shame, Anna Clark. <laughs> Glam City is your go-to cultural experience, experience uh, where we lift the lid and take you behind the scenes to reveal what's happening in our galleries, our archives, our libraries and our museums. We're interested in talking to uh, curators and archivists and researchers uh, and all sorts of purveyors of cultural heritage about how we make meaning, how we remember the past and how you can participate in that. If you want to listen to our back catalogue, you can find us on 2SER.com. And I'm Tamsin Peach. <laughs> and I'm Anna Clark. Hello, Anna Clark. Thanks, Tamsin. Nice to see you today. And as many of listeners might be aware, we are coming up to the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras. For those of you who are in Sydney, probably you will be well aware that every February Mardi Gras occurs, celebrating and protesting um, gay and lesbian uh, queer, transgender, intersex rights in Sydney. On this episode of Glam City, we are lucky enough to have not only a historian of Mardi Gras, but someone who was actually there right at the very beginning. Welcome, Robin Kennedy, to Glam City. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Tamsin. Robin marched in the first Mardi Gras. Well, we've got here in our script parade, but maybe that's not quite the right <laughs> description for what it was in 1978. Can you tell us a bit more, Robin? Uh, well, it actually was a parade until... Uh, the, the paraders were attacked by police. Uh, so maybe I'll go back a little bit. The Mardi Gras actually happened not in February, but on the 24th of June, 1978. So it was much cooler and then Mardi Gras is these days. Why, but, why February? Oh, I mean, why June? Uh, well, because we were uh, doing a commemoration of the Stonewall Riots. So the Stonewall Riots, uh, if people remember what that was, happened in New York in 1969. There was a bar called Stonewall, uh, which was frequented by gay, lesbian, uh, trans, uh, and it was constantly raided by police who were on the take, uh, so had to have a bit of cash across the palm to hold off the next raid. Anyway, uh, on this fateful day in June, the patrons fought back and the riot actually went on for four days. There was barricading and police and the crowds were cheering on. A lot of people were arrested and bashed. And each year from then, there was a commemoration. And in 1978... The Gay Solidarity Group uh, in the US sent out a call internationally for gay lesbian organisations to commemorate with them. So we actually had our morning march on the 24th of June, uh, which paraded through the streets of Sydney, our usual chants and placards and the sort of thing that we did in the 70s. That was relatively peaceful. I don't think where there were too many arrests. But then the we also had the idea of having something fun at night. Because when you go back to the 70s, uh, you need to keep in mind that a lot of people were in the closet because there was a real threat of 
losing uh, their job. Could, could you say what the legislative situation was okay. in the 70s? Well, in the 70s, uh, for gay men, uh, it was still illegal to have sex, even if it was consenting sex in the privacy of your own home. And gay men uh, did get raided by police in their own home and faced uh, jail sentences of up to 14 years. So that was illegal. Also, there was institutionalised discrimination. And what I mean by that is uh, sexuality was explicitly excluded from anti-discrimination legislation. So it was, at that time, a real climate of fear Uh, people were very worried about what if their families found out, what if their employer found out. So the idea was, okay, let's have something at night where people can feel more invisible. And we said, let's wear outfits, you know, dress-ups, which people did, by and large, except the lesbians, we never get dressed up. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we take clothes off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the 70s, we uh, never got dressed up. We wore our duffel coats and things like that. Uh, so sensible. the idea was you could put makeup on, you could wear wigs and that sort of thing. So you could be anonymous. You could have a fun night and be out on the streets with your friends and be pretty much anonymous and not so exposed as in a demo. And having fun, too. And having fun. That was the idea, fun. So it was actually a street party. That was the intention, a street party at night. And all was going swimmingly. And so where was it? Uh, well, it was uh, in the inner city. It was Taylor Square and um, down um, some of the Liverpool Street around that area, uh, Hyde Park. And everything was going okay, as I say, until the police turned up. And it was pretty much a premeditated attack because the police officers had removed their identifying badges and they were there in force. They knew all about it and they had one intention only, which was to get us off the streets by any means possible. And that meant physically attacking people and arresting them, chucking them into the paddy wagons, taking them off to Darlinghurst Police Station. Uh, where uh, women, the women and the men were held and then the women were eventually transferred to Central Police Station. So it was a pretty rough night in the end. But I think in a way, if the police hadn't attacked, that might have been the end of Mardi Gras. Yes, I was going to ask, was it, <laughs> did it turn out to be a galvanising moment? It was an absolutely galvanising moment. I mean, on that night, there were only a few hundred people, really, But because of what happened, there was a huge groundswell of anger at the government, at the police, and a a lot of support coming from different parts of the left. So we had unions, we had the women's movement, teachers and students associations, the more progressive parts of the church all came out in support. So there was a vigil held on the night the arrest took place. There was a vigil held on the Monday morning at Central Court and there were a few more demonstrations over the next couple of months. But the police kept arresting people 
which is what they shouldn't have done if they actually wanted Mardi Gras to go away. Because <laughs> on the first night, uh, 53 people were arrested, about half of them women. And then over the course uh, of the rest of June, July and August, more and more people were arrested. So we, by the end of August, we were up to about 200 arrests. I'm, I'm guessing, I don't really know, maybe you can elaborate, but at the time, you know, being arrested by police and being subject to police attack and so on, could have felt like a very scary experience. Now, 40 years later, is it more like a badge of honour? Has the sort of feeling of what that moment meant changed? I think a lot of people do feel very proud that uh, they were part of a movement that fought back against oppression and discrimination and the efforts of our community at that time resulted in the repeal of discriminatory legislation. So the Crimes Act was amended to decriminalise homosexuality. The Summary Offences Act was repealed the following year. And the Summary Offences Act was the legislation that the police had used as the basis for arresting people. Uh, It was a very broad piece of legislation which gave police pretty much unlimited powers of arrest. So that was repealed. The anti-discrimination legislation was amended to include sexual orientation as a ground uh, for non-discrimination. So a lot happened afterwards that I think really, without that groundswell of support, it might have taken a lot longer to achieve those victories. So yeah, people do feel proud that they were part of that. But I think the other side of the coin is some people are still very traumatised by what happened to them. Even though that it was 40 years ago, there are people in the community that their distress is so close to the surface, you can see it. And it only needs a very slight trigger for that emotion to come out. Mm. How are those people finding the sort of celebratory nature of the way we we talk about gay and lesbian and transgender issues now, um, particularly in the context of the, the, the survey? Um, I think there's probably mixed feelings. I think we're all really happy that we've come so far, maybe not so happy that it's taken 40 years. <laughs> like it was only in uh, 2016 that the New South Wales Parliament apologised to our community uh, for what happened in 78. So that was then 38 years later. And at the time, the Herald also apologised for publishing the names of those arrested because that had a devastating effect on people. Uh, In 78, to have such public outing uh, was a devastating thing and people did lose their jobs. They were kicked out of home. Uh, Some people lost their tenancy And some people actually committed suicide. So there's all those memories as well. Uh, So there's a lot of joy about having got to this milestone. But it's mixed with those kinds of emotions. And certainly those kinds of emotions did come up during the marriage equality survey. I mean, there was been a lot, there was a lot of talk about the impact on young uh, gay, lesbian, trans kids. And that's true. That was a very tough time for them, particularly if they had same-sex parents. 
but it also had a big impact on older members of the community because all those memories came back that they had experienced themselves. It was all very, and it was a very emotional time, I mm. think. Tamsin and I are also 78ers, not because we were there, but we were born in 1978. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's kind of impossible in a way to imagine what it might have been like as, uh, you know, gay, lesbian, trans, queer in Sydney at that mm. time because, as you say, so much has changed. Mm. Yet there are still really big issues facing queer young people in mm. Australia who, who want to, who want change, who want recognition. Um what are the sorts of what are the sorts of things that are needed still for equality beyond you know same sex marriage? Is that enough? What's next? Well, it's not enough. Um, it's a great victory, but it's not enough. There's a lot of, as you say, a lot of young kids who feel very isolated. There's a lot of bullying that still goes on in schools. And we saw the fiasco about the program that. <laughs> was banned from being taught in schools because that was going to turn people safe gay. Yeah. <laughs> safe schools. <clears throat> that has got to change. I mean, we can't go on having young kids commit suicide uh, because of bullying about their sexuality. So we need much better than people just saying, OK, it's OK for you to get married. There needs to be much better an understanding of the impact of bullying on young kids. There needs to be much better community support around that. And we have a lot of other issues that we're facing at the moment. As a sort of member of the elder part of our community, ageing is a massive issue for us now because of the lack of appropriate services and facilities uh, for members of our community as they age. And, it, I mean, part of that ageing process is a sort of the um, collection of memories mm. that you have as a generation. Mm. Uh, you know, you're really the the sort of the parents or the grandparents of this movement. What is being done to preserve those memories uh, for future generations? Well, that's actually a concern uh, for us, that it is preserved. It's preserved in a way there's repositories of archival material. So the State Library has some material, the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives has some material. So it's around, but a lot of it is not digitised or accessible. So it's sort of hidden away a bit. Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras are looking at a preservation project to preserve a lot of the material that has been produced over the last 40 years. But I think the problem is it's all not very coordinated And it's at hard, the to, hard to store some of those floats, I imagine. It is hard to store them. <laughs> Usually they're just dismantled. I sometimes see them in reverse garbage That's as right. I'm <laughs> taking they, my kids. <laughs> they get dismantled or uh, they're stored. Uh, if it's spectacular costumes or something, they are usually stored or the National Library or something like that would will take them on. Uh, and sometimes they go on tours of, you know, costumes around the place. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important to preserve our history because if we don't know where we've come from, we don't really know, you know, where we're going in a way. And our freedoms are so easily lost. Mm. 
You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3 and we're talking about the history of Mardi Gras. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. The show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History, UTS, with support for 2SER. And don't forget to rate us because it makes it easier for people to find our show. As we mentioned, Mardi Gras season's upon us and we're looking at the history of behind the glitter. We're very lucky to be joined here by Robin Kennedy, who's a 78er and a Mardi Gras historian. She is also, we should say, secretary and treasurer of the First Mardi Gras, <laughs> Inc., a non-profit organisation that promotes the history of the First Mardi Gras. And you're on the board of Mardi Gras. Yes? <laughs> you get around. So you're past yeah. and present and future. <laughs> that's right. Speaking of lessons from the past. That's, that's me. <laughs> I'm very busy Stradling, since I retired. A Stradling walking archive. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's very very important in that we've been talking about the presence of the past, mm. or the yeah, in the present. Mm. And, um, and I guess the 40 anniversary of Mardi Gras is a place where a lot of those memories are being returned to, they're being revisited, they're being produced in a way. So what are some of the activities that are going on around the commemoration in this year's Mardi Gras? Well, it's a huge program this year. If you've had a look at the uh, festival guide, it it is amazing. The diversity, the variety of uh, performances that are happening. It's been a massive effort by the uh, festival production team to get all of this uh, happening. Uh, So it's really hard to choose what to go to. But also our organisation, First Mardi Gras, which um, has been set up by 78ers, we're putting on a number of things as well, commemorative events, because there is a misconception that nothing was happening before 78, which is not true at all. It was maybe more closeted before 78, but there was a movement for sure um, that started probably late 60s, early 70s in terms of the establishment of organisations. It was more informal before that, but for example, the organisation called CAMP, which stood for Campaign Against Moral Persecution, uh, was established in 1970. Uh, I joined camp in 1975, the tender age of about 21, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I was so glad to find them, I can't tell you, because I couldn't find any lesbians in my Catholic school. (laughs) Well, there were probably quite a few there. Well, there probably (laughs) were, and I had a few questions about the nuns, but anyway, so I was so pleased to find a connection, a community connection. I mean, now it's so easy, obviously, you know, there's so much out there, uh, so much for um, so many organisations for people to connect to, mm. so many social events. But then there wasn't anything, and particularly for women. Yeah, the archives of camp um, are really extraordinary and they reveal the the difficulty of this communication. I remember reading one, it was a correspondence from um, a woman who was a mum and she was writing and saying, I think I'm attracted to women, what do I do? Mm. You know, I have a husband and a child. Mm. And the, the respondent, the sort of correspondence back was, you know, come to one of our meetings yeah. Wednesday night. Exactly. I can't remember what it is, is, is lady, women's night. Women's night, Wednesday night. Yep. There you go, I did remember. And it is extraordinary to think that these people were, uh, like yourself evidently, were sort of living their lives and wondering, how do you find people like me? That's right. It, it really was an incredible challenge. And for me, it was just a, it was sheer chance 
um, I saw an ad in the paper for a seminar on what was then called female homosexuality. We didn't really use the term lesbian at first. Um, and I looked at it and I thought, wow, you know, maybe I could meet some lesbians. Well, I was terrified, of course, at going uh, <laughs> to it, but I did go. And I did meet people, and I very quickly became involved in camp, the organisation, and almost within minutes was on the executive committee. And you've never left it, by the way. I was studying law at the time, and they thought, oh, great, let's get a lawyer. So um, I became very involved in that organisation, and camp was one of the primary organisations that organised the Mardi Gras. Uh, Robin, I'm fascinated here. You know, you're sort of talking about how the private and the public uh, and the political are linked together mm. right from the get-go in those mm. spaces. And often now we want to separate those two mm. things. We say, this is my private life and mm. it's, it's not political. Um, and in between there's been a whole history of those things coming together, pulling apart. What do you think about that at the moment? It seems to me that the private is always political mm. and that when we try and talk about them as separate, we're doing some something very particular. Yeah. Well, you know, feminism always said the personal is political because taking a stand is outside what is accepted as, you know, normal or appropriate behaviour is a political statement. So just being who you are is a was a very political statement in the 70s. And I actually, I think it still should be. Um, like, I don't really think there is a separation between personal and political because everything you do is within a context, a social and political context. So I don't know that you know, the younger members of our community see that because they haven't experienced the discrimination and oppression that uh, older members of our community went through. But I think, and I think that's why, that's one of the reasons we exist as an organisation, to try and remind people of that connection, mm. that who you are now um, is really linked to what's gone before and that we can't rest on our achievements. We have to recognise that we have a responsibility and a role to continue to work to address uh, discrimination and oppression. So it's not just young kids, you know, living in rural or regional areas or older people living in isolated communities, but it's also the members of our community that identify as trans, like we've done very little in that space and we really need to be focusing on that. I'd also like to see much better inclusion of our um, Indigenous community who I know don't feel connected to a lot of what happens during Mardi Gras Festival uh, or connected to organisations that represent gay and lesbian or trans people. So there's a real, there's a lot of work to happen there. 
And sometimes it seems to me too that that element that you described in the in 1978 of the teachers and the you know all these other community groups coming to rally behind um, the arrested members, you know, there is also about a looking out to other forms of group, other groups in the present that are, mm. that are that are struggling around mm. rights based issues, mm. and that's part of the role of the community too, mm. not just that's to look right. after ourselves, but to look in solidarity. That's right. The same sex marriage debate, I think, really you know, um, showed that there are divisions in the community between those who are sort of more progressive, wanting, you know, agreeing with the survey to have same-sex marriage and and those who don't. Perhaps less understood is whether there are divisions within the queer community as well about um, the memories of this political movement. Mm. Um, Is that contested as well as you know, the, the, the yays and the nays sort of thing? The history is very much contested. Um, it was 40 years ago, and but even at the time, people had a different interpretation of what we were trying to do. But 40 years ago, there's very different understandings of uh, what Mardi Gras was about, how did it fit in to everything else that was happening uh, We've never really been a united movement and you wouldn't expect that. So at the time there was, a you know, gay businesses, for example, really didn't want the fuss. They didn't want us out on the streets complaining and demanding rights and things like that. that you know, they, they were pretty happy just flying under the radar. So there wasn't all that much support for when we staged the Mardi Gras in the following year, there was a lot of opposition to staging it. Like, what are you doing it for again? And, you know, people don't want to see that again. And, you know, because they just wanted to keep under the radar. Mm. So, I mean, there's always been those tensions, and there probably still is in a way between those that are still very focused on the achievement of human rights globally, not just locally, and those who think, well, you know, we're pretty good now, we've got marriage and we've got all these other things and things are pretty okay now, but they probably live in Sydney. Uh, <laughs> and how does do those contested memories and those also contested positions mm. um, get represented in the context of the, of the commemoration? Well, I guess around Mardi Gras, everybody's having fun. So <laughs> it doesn't come up too often, I suppose, in during the festival. And I'm sure there will be audience members who don't agree with our interpretation of history. But that's okay. That's um, what history's about, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's never been a single truth. It's uh, your interpretation of uh, events. I'm never someone who believes in single truths. Um, so there will be, yeah, some people who don't agree with the positions that are going to be presented, but I think that's healthy. Speaking of multiple truths, um, we're coming up to our last segment, which is Glam Slam. Glam Slam is where we tell you what's coming up in our diaries. And tell you what, my diary is jam-packed full of Mardi Gras stuff, but I can only imagine what Robin's diary looks like. So, Robin, what what should people be going to? What are you going to? All right. Well, I'm going to all the things we're putting on. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) See you there. And where do you find out about them, Robin? Is there a website or something? We have a website. Um, 
which is www.78ers.org.au and the 78ers is the numerals 7, 8 and then ERS. So we have all our events up on that website. So one of the things I'm really looking forward to is our art exhibition, which is called 40 Years of Queer Art, Rebellion and Subversion. Mm. So that should get you along. That opens on the 21st of February. Uh, That's the opening night between 6 and 8. And then it runs through every day, 11 till 5, until the 8th of March. It's a terrific exhibition. Um, We've pulled together artists uh, who have been producing works uh, since the 70s. Uh, So there's works from uh, people like David McDiarmid, who was a very, very influential artist of the day, Uh, Frances Phoenix, uh, who passed away last year, Uh, feminist artist, very involved with, uh, now this is going to test your history here, girls, Judy Chicago's work in the US. (laughs) Now, I've got one nod and one blank. I've got a nod. I'm nodding. Anna is nodding and I'm getting a total blank. (laughs) So I'll obviously have to go and find out about Judy. I'll never drink a cup of tea again. (laughs) Oh, really? Is that that the fairy cup? The fairy cup. Fairy cup. Is she fairy cup lady? Uh, But not about the fairy cup, but she did, she pioneered uh, work called Central Core Imagery, which was representations of the vagina. Wow, I'm definitely there. You're there, (laughs) which was very, very controversial at the time, Uh, was considered pornographic. But Frances Finis was very influenced by this work and she's. we have one of her most famous pieces uh, in the exhibition. And we have a more contemporary artist as well. So William Yang is putting in a few of his pieces we have Kim Lutweiler, who was a finalist in the Archibald Prize. Um, we have Lisa Anderson, who's done these terrific uh, panels. They're silk panels that will be hanging, and they're photographs of brides. They're called the Bride Variations, and they're amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> Lovely. And we have an Aboriginal artist called Troy Anthony Bayless who's produced a series of works that are very, very satirical. They're a play on traditional Australian landscapes. So it just looks like an ordinary bush landscape. And then when you look closely, there's this strange little pink figure in sitting in the landscape and one of them looks a bit like a fairy another one looks like a kangaroo in a pink dress um, they're very whimsical so it's a huge, it's an amazing uh, collection of work uh, so i'd encourage anyone to go along Wonderful. to that what are you seeing tamzo well, I'm um, going to, of course, be hosting a the Australian Centre for Public Histories lecture. Get out at of town, Kings Cross Library, which is on the twentieth, I think. 
Gosh, I better get that right. That will be at the King's Cross Library and it's called Out in the Streets. Uh, and we will be with a panel thinking about some of the exact questions we've been talking about today. What about you? Mm. I am going to be in Canberra. Woohoo! National roundabout. Here we yeah, come. Yep, yep. Going round and round. And um, so I'm going to catch the last couple of days of the Songlines Seven Sisters um, exhibition at the National Museum of Australia, which looks at the sort of seven sisters dreaming from Central Australia. I'm really excited that I'm just going to catch it. I went last weekend. Amazeballs. Okay. Amazeballs. Damn, I wanted to see that. Now I'm going to miss it because I'm going to too many Mardi Gras things. Yeah, I reckon that there was a good campaign to make that a permanent exhibition. It is such Mm. a remarkable, in a way, origin story for our nation Mm. that doesn't have anything to do with Captain Cook and, you know, all power to it. So thank you, listeners, for joining us once again. Thank you, Robin. Um, Pleasure. You can see Robin at any of the Mardi Gras events. Yes, all of the Mardi Gras Just turn up, you'll see me. (laughs) And will we see you on stage at the the, the parade? I may be on stage. I'm not sure. I know the board has to do something, but I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure they'll tell me. But I'll also be in the 78ers tent. And, yeah, visit the tent. It's good. I mean, it's great fun. We had... Huge numbers of visitors last year, and we're expecting a lot more. Maybe we should set up our year. own 78 as tent, Tamsin. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. 40. You can go there because you were born in 78. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> feeling, feeling the pride. So thank pride. you for joining us, um, everyone. We are drawing to a close on um, Glam City for this week's episode. And you can find us, of course, on 107.3 2SER or the 2SER website, 2SER.com. Check us out, leave us a rating, and we'll see you next week. Glam out. Glam out. <laughs> <laughs>